familiar psalm for many of you, but um, there's great uh, truth in this, this psalm, and I wanted to share that with you this morning. <clears throat> so I'm going to read Psalm 1 from the Legacy Standard, which says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaves do not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. <clears throat> Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. God, we thank you for a time that we can gather around your word. We thank you for a time where we can worship you in song and in giving. And I pray that you would be honored by it, Lord. Father, I pray now that your word would go forth and that the preacher would decrease and that you may increase, Lord. And uh, Father, we ultimately pray for your glory here. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so Psalm 1, even though it's the first psalm here in the book, it's not the first psalm that's written. Uh, essentially, it does function, though, as an introduction to the entirety of the psalms. Uh, however, its theme is as big as the entire Bible. And psalm 1, like the rest of Scripture, speaks of two people. It speaks of their path. It speaks ultimately of their destination. And so here we are confronted with a contrast of, of two kinds of people. People who are blessed by Yahweh and people cursed who are outside the fellowship of Yahweh. There are those who delight in His Word and those who reject it. Ones who walk in the path of the Lord and ones on the path of destruction. One whose final destination is eternity with God and other whose eternal destination is judgment. And I'm sure many of you, like myself, can remember a, a time what life was like before Christ. For me, it was, it was dark and it was hollow. I hated the, the mention of God. I did all I could do to escape reality. I, I did have a, a work ethic, but I think at its root, it was more motivated by pride and fear of man. But after coming to know Christ, there was a change. See, of course, uh, sinful thoughts and you know, actions, they were, they were still there. They still affected me, but... Uh, I look back, I do see that some seasons were better than others. However, I found a peace in Christ. And I became eager to study His Word and to think and hear upon the things of God. And I began to accept reality. And my motivation for work ethic changed a bit. And I now preach to myself regularly that whatever I do, that I may do it unto the Lord. So at my core, I was a different person. Not close to perfect, but changed. And there may be some of you who, maybe you grew up in the church and you can look back and you don't see a striking contrast from, uh, you know, this life before Christ and a life after Christ. Nevertheless, there's still a truth that remains between us is that we were sinners dead in our trespasses and sin, 
And having been made now children of God, redeemed people, forgiven by Him, there's a difference between the dead man and the man who is now alive. And that's what we see in our text this morning, though it's um, somewhat of a simple text that's impactful. See, the psalmist, he provides an assessment on two kinds of people. We will look together at the blessedness of the righteous and the cursedness of the cursed. So it'll be under two headings. We have the blessedness of the righteous and the cursedness of the cursed. On the first one, the blessedness of the righteous, we see this in verses 1 through 3. And you see right away, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This term here, blessed, means happy or a joyful state of mind. It does not mean happy in the sense of like a, you know, Joel Osteen, like just put a smile on your face and, you know, uh, life's a garden, dig it kind of a thing. Uh, What this really gets down to is a certain kind of deep-seated joy. You know, oftentimes when we think of happiness, we do kind of attach it to an emotion, right? But if we think about it, life's hard. Uh, In life, we experience grief and sorrow maybe the loss of a loved one, maybe the loss of a job. Perhaps you're, you have been persevering through an illness or I'm sure many of us can uh, identify with, we deal with conflict regularly, right? So life's not easy, but how can we say that it's a happy thing, right? We can all admit that if happiness were based on a certain emotion, then we would have to say no, Indeed, life's not happy. I can't be happy. But what is most important is that we recognize what the psalmist is speaking of here is not solely based on an emotion. It's a genuine satisfaction. It's a supernatural reality of the inner soul of a believer. It stems from a redemptive favor. To the joy, it does not come from temporal things. A show of hands in here. How many of you in here have met with something from this world that has promised an unending satisfaction of this world in the temporal, an unending satisfaction. (laughs) I would say we can't necessarily raise our hand because what this earth has to offer in a temporal sense doesn't necessarily have an unending satisfaction. But if it is tied to something that is eternal, With eternal weight, yes, indeed, it has an unending satisfaction. See, the righteous man, he doesn't cling to the things of this world. Rather, he is sustained and is satisfied in the Lord. So the joy of the Lord is his strength. The the truth, this truth resonates in someone like the the Apostle Paul, where he was a man who was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked three times. He was beaten with a rod Three times he was stoned. He spent day and night adrift in the sea. He was dragged out of cities. He labored much. He was thirsty. He was hungry. But yet he encouraged a people like those who were in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always. And to add extra emphasis, he says, again I say rejoice. See, he's able to encourage such a people. He's able to preach to such a people with a truth like that. Because that's what flowed out of his heart. In Romans three, or I'm sorry, Romans five, three through five, it says to exalt in tribulation, 
Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and character hope. Or hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in your heart through the Holy Spirit who was given. See, the blessed man is like Paul. The blessed man also likewise uh, agrees with what James says when he says, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let that endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's that so that you may be whole, you may be complete, you may be satisfied that even when your faith is being tested, that even when trials are coming your way, you're able to endure and have that deep-seated joy because of where you are in the Lord. And that your heart would sing out like the old hymn that says, It is well with my soul. This satisfaction, this happiness meets with a joy and a hope that comes down from on high. Do you know this happiness and this satisfaction? Can this be said of you? See, this passage begins with a positively stated characteristic, but then it gives us negatively stated characteristics. I don't mean negative characteristics of the blessed man, but characteristics that are stated negatively, such as do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinner, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So what we see here is a picture of this one who's separating himself from the world system. He's not completely cutting himself off from the world. And I heard my pastor comment on this before. He said, Christians are not to isolate themselves, but insulate themselves. And I thought that was helpful to think through our relationship with the world and how we are to interact. So the righteous, the, the blessed one, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. See, this is something that we must guard ourselves from, uh, to be cautious of what we are putting before our eyes, what we're allowing to enter to our ears and permeate our minds. Perhaps reading certain books, reading internet articles, watching things on TV, what we watch uh, when it comes to movies, Those aren't formal uh, ways of counsel in a sense, but yet they provide counsel nevertheless. And there's people all around us that are in our ear, but we have to be aware and on guard that we do not take counsel from the wicked, though the wicked counsel is everywhere. I mean, think about what shapes your mind. Think about what affects your worldview. Think about what guides your actions? I don't know about you, but there are oftentimes when I hear about Christians who they reference counsel that they received from the worldliest influences. And, and, and I cringe at it, and I, I cringe at the fact that they don't see a problem with that and the effect that it could have. And I know it sounds elementary to say that we must avoid taking in such counsel, like the counsel of the wicked, and that we're to take in truth. That's something that we would hear on the most fundamental, you know, level of Sunday school. But, oh, how we need to hear that. But not just hear it. Do it. When we have knowledge that's apprehended by truth and faith, we're able to discern the truth from a lie. And it could save us from a lot of heartache. It could save us from a lot of pain. It could save us from a lot of grief. And they, they, they teach you in banking that the best way to spot counterfeit is by studying the real thing. 
See, I used to be in banking for about six years and got to the point I could count money fast. Just and even at the touch of a counterfeit bill, I was able to, to, to know. Like, I'm, I'm running through, and boom, wait, that didn't feel right. Pull it out, look at it, counterfeit. And, and that's how we ought to be spiritually, right? That as we examine, we observe the real thing, and we become so accustomed, and, and that at the slightest touch, we can recognize where the error is from the wicked counsel, that we would step back from it and not engage it. And so this is how the righteous man is. He, he grows in greater knowledge of truth. He uh, grows in the knowledge of God. And it means that he ascends to a healthy discernment. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. You may have heard it said before that bad company corrupts good morals. So, so the righteous man, in a general sense, in a general way of life, he's not associating his actions with that of the corrupt. The righteous one does not reflect that of the unregenerate man. He doesn't reflect it in a way of action, and he doesn't reflect it in a way of his thinking. He refuses to be entertained by lewdness, <laughs> and he doesn't laugh at crude jokes. He's not given into that sort of thing as he's separating himself, distancing himself from the way of sinner. He's not cozying up with that. And I remember there was a time when I worked at this call center. I was reminded of this as I read this text. And I remember I went in, I was about a year and a half into the faith, and, and I was ready to like see everybody get saved. Even though I didn't have much knowledge of Scripture, I knew what God did in my life. And so I wanted to evangelize all these people. And after a time, what I found was I started to hear all these people around, laughing, making crude jokes. And at first, you know, I kind of laughed in my own mind at it. And then I began to laugh out loud at it. And then I began to make comments with them about it. And then the Lord convicted me. And he's like, what are you doing? You're standing in the way of sinners. You're standing with these sinners. You're acting like them. You're giving in to what's entertaining to them. And I had to repent. And I thought to myself, this is a bad testimony that I come in as the Christian, and now they see me laughing with them. What testament is that? And then I thought, well, how can I just repent and then go back to the way I was? And well, I had to honor the Lord, so it took time, it took a process, but I needed to be consistent. So I was reminded of such truth as I went through that. With sin, we don't want to see how close we can get to the fire without getting burned. We don't want to see how close we can get to the things of this world and think that we can remain unscathed. To the righteous, he doesn't stand with sinners, nor does he sit in the seat with scoffers. One commentary said that the psalmist is presenting a downward spiral. He draws attention to the thinking, behaving, and belonging. From walking in the counsel of the wicked, which affects the thinking, to standing with the sinners, which affects behavior, to sitting in the seat with scoffers, representing a belonging to or identification with. There's a spiral effect. And this, there, this downward spiral means that he's given heed to the way of the wicked. And, and when you do that, what, you, what you'll see is it, it becomes more and more easy to become affiliated with those types of things. 
And then before you know it, you look back and say, how did I get here? Scoffers, they're mockers of truth. They're arrogant fools. They refuse discipline and correction. And we live in a day where scoffers actually outnumber God-fearers. So what do we do to be able to stand firm in a day such as ours? Well, we have the answers in verses 2 through 3. That's our answer. And what the psalmist does for us is he takes us from these negatively stated characteristics to these positively stated ones. That he, his delight is in the law of Yahweh and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield fruit in its season. Its leaves do not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. MacArthur, he commented on this saying, switching from a positive description to the spiritually happy man, (laughs) is characterized by the consistent contemplation and internalization of God's word for ethical direction and obedience. So the spiritual happy man is characterized by something consistent. And that consistent thing is the consumption and internalization of God's word. And with that consistent consumption and internalization of God's word, it leads to ethical direction and obedience. This is the right kind of delight. This is how we can stand firm in such a day that we would be saturated in the Word of God. And of course, in our context, he's speaking of the Torah, but in our day, we do have the whole canon of Scripture. We have the whole Bible. And for the righteous, we know that there has been a heart change that has occurred where God has removed the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And he has written the law of Yahweh on that heart. God has put his spirit in the believer as a means to walk and obey his commands and to to have a way of life that uh, has an internal God-given desire. It's something that was not there before, but then is there now. It's something supernatural that we can't conjure up or, uh, or, or put in place. It's, it's given by God. It's a grace of God. But we must admit that there are times where our flesh, it certainly wants to battle this. There's a contention that takes place where even as genuine believers, we find ourselves at times we are challenged with getting in the Word to, to, to have an uninterrupted, fruitful time in God's Scripture, hearing from Him and growing in Him. And even in those times, we find certain challenges because as a well-taught church, what could happen is we become numb to what God is saying. We become unaffected by God's Word because we hear it so often. But when you read the Bible, you don't just want to pick it up and read words on a page. You want to meditate on it. You want to soak it in. Ponder it, reflect it, speak it out loud. Day and night, it represents something that's done continually. Is your meditation of God's Word day and night? Are you continually reflecting on it? Not just looking, reading past it. And you could be pretty sure that whatever your answer is to that question, whether it's a yes or a no, that is a commentary on how your life looks and the way that you think and act and what ones would say that you are identified with. See, because we grow in proportion to our consumption. 
Some of us men in here know that the more we consume, the bigger our midsection gets. <laughs> Amen? But if we don't eat, we starve. Right? So spiritually speaking, do you have a big appetite? Are you causing your spiritual midsection to grow? Or are you starving yourself? We ought to be like this tree that's firmly planted near streams of water. We see verses 1 and 2, they roll into verse 3. We have this man who's sustained by the Lord. This tree does, does not just plant itself by the water, it's been transplanted. And this is an illustration, this is something that speaks of the story of those who are in Christ, the story of our salvation. Because the Bible speaks of an origin, one that demonstrates a barren land of sin, spiritually dead in the domain of darkness, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love from which He loved, He brought life to a sinner. He transferred that sinner from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His Son and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So God laid hold of us and sovereignly transplanted us near streams of water. We have a supernatural reservoir that we can continually soak up. MacArthur said it well. He said, Trees do not plant themselves, neither do sinful people transport themselves into the kingdom of God. So salvation is a marvelous work of grace. And this living water that this tree is by, it never runs dry. It's planted in a place of abundant life, a place of constant nourishment. It's a place of timely fruitfulness, of enduring strength, of godliness, flourishing like an evergreen tree. And good times and bad and plenty and poverty, suffering, relief, it still thrives. And like the text says, the, the righteous or the blessed man, he, he prospers in all he does. And whatever he does, it's, it's a comprehensive prosperity. His soul prospers, his spirit is strengthened, he doesn't dry up. And obviously we're not talking about prosperity in the sense of the health and wealth gospel. But what we're talking about is one who's complete in Yahweh. And for us Christians, we can have confident joy that He has made us complete in Him. We don't have to question it. Just trust Him. And all that we do, we prosper because of Him. Does this represent your life? Have you found a satisfaction that's, that's, that's given you a sense of joy to know that you are complete in Him? Are you in the world but not of it and delighting in God's Word? Can it be said of you that you are planted near this stream where there's constant nourishment, timely fruitfulness, enduring strength, and complete prosperity. Continue on to verse 4. There's a transition from the blessedness of the righteous, which was the first main point, to the second point, the cursedness of the cursed. See that in verses 4 through 6, as it says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
And we did get a short glimpse of the wicked in these previous verses when we saw the, the contrast of the blessed man and what he was not supposed to do. It's a bleak contrast. And, and then what we see here is this wicked man, is he blessed? No. Satisfied? No. Fruitful? No. What he would be characterized as one who is walking in the counsel of the wicked. He's, he's standing with the sinners. He's sitting with the scoffers. He's unregenerate, unconverted. He's still in the barren wilderness of sin. Does not delight in truth. Withers up and is worthless. His thoughts and attitudes, they desire wickedness, wickedness all the day. He's totally depraved from head to toe. He, he's described as like this chaff in the wind. He's like this fine ground up powder or dust that's picked up by even the slightest breeze and is blown away into nothingness. This chaff does not have value. Likewise, the wicked's man, the wicked man's life has no value. Ephesians 4 it speaks of a kind of person such as this where he says he's futile in his thinking, darkened in his understanding, he's exiled, he's exiled from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in him, because of the hardness of heart, because he's calloused. He's been given over to sensuality in every practice of impurity with greediness. So it's not just a small dose of it, this uh, impurity. No, he's greedy for it. This is his yearning. This is his desire. Romans 1 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him or give Him thanks, but they, because of the futility in their speculation, their foolishness in their hearts, they were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image that has formed the corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So these ones, similar to those described in Ephesians, they're, they're given over to this vain thinking. And, and they, these ones profess to be wise, yet they're fools. They don't recognize the glory and the power and the splendor of the infinite God, yet they put stock in a fake God that could be carved out by human hands. Now, this is the way of the wicked. A worthless fool who's feeding the idol factory of his heart. And there's a strong conclusion in verse 5 of this man, the ungodly. It says that they will not stand in judgment. The wicked, they're not, they're, they're without a case. They're without a plea before God as they stand before him on the day of judgment. It doesn't mean that, they're, that they won't stand or appear in final judgment, but that they they will not be able to be found acquitted before him. They, it, it means that they won't be approved before God. They're not accepted before him. There's a separation that will occur, that there's going to be a separation of the wheat and the tares. The, the wicked will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. They don't have a just claim with them. And that sinners, they will not stand in the assembly of the righteous because they will be excluded from the community of God. Excluded from fellowship with brethren and with 
and eternal dwelling with the saints. The outcome for both the righteous and the wicked, as found right here in our text, says the way of the righteous, so that leads to life. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. You might be saying, well, the Lord knows everything. Of course he knows the way of the righteous. <laughs> what this more accurately would state is that, what it would more accurately communicate is that he shares, God shares intimacy with the righteous. It's a loving relationship. You think about the closeness that you have with your spouse, how much you love each other, and how much you know each other. You think about the closeness that you have with a friend. It doesn't pale in comparison with the intimacy and with the knowing that God has for his people. See, the reason, part of the reason being is that God is intimately acquainted with the ways of the righteous because he paves that way, right? God's intimately acquainted with the the ways of the righteous because he travels with them in that way. And after reading Psalm 1, I can't help but think of the Sermon on the Mount and the words of Jesus where it says in chapter 5, verses 2 through 3, that he, Jesus, opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and are falsely uh, saying evil against you because of me. And he says, rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they will persecute you. This is the way of the righteous, and God is intimately there with them. And they are blessed. Their reward is great. There's a righteousness that leads to heavenly inheritance, leads to satisfaction and life. But there's also the way of the wicked, and that leads to death. They will perish. Their soul will experience a turmoil and a damnation for eternity. And there will be a wailing and gnashing of teeth. There will be eternal ruin. That's what it says here. At at the end of verse 6, but the way of the wicked, they will perish. And as we read a moment ago out of Jeremiah, I'll read it again. It says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, who makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. For he will be like a bush or juniper in the desert, and he will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. But blessed is the man whose trust is in Yahweh and whose trust is 
Yahweh. For he will be like a tree planted by water that extends its roots in the stream and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought because it will not cease to yield fruit. You see the parallel there between what Jeremiah speaks of and what Psalm 1 speaks of. And there are these two kinds of people. So ask yourself today, which one are you? Which one are you? May it be our prayer that we would be a people resolved to do the will of the Father through the redemptive work of the Son, by the sanctifying power of the Spirit, that we would rejoice in the present while looking forward to a future hope, being anchored in the love of God as it's been poured down from on high and meditating on God's Word continually so that we would be like this tree planted near the streams of endless water. May that be true of you. May that be true of me. But if, as of right now, that's not true of you, remember the gospel, the good news that's found in Christ, knowing that we were born sinners to one day sin by choice. And because of that sin, we've offended a holy God. And that what we deserve is eternal wrath. Like I said, the wicked will perish. That's what we deserve. But God made a way for the sinner to be made right with Him. That we are justified by faith so that we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And by trusting in the person and work of Christ, we can be found blameless before Him. Experiencing the benevolent grace of God and all that these truths have to offer in a real sense. It's not just words on a page. It's reality. It's truth. So look to Christ today and live. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this simple yet profound truth that's found in your word. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who not just hear the word, but do it that we would reflect on this scripture throughout this upcoming week. And may it, may it be something that causes fruit for your glory, Lord. Plant your seed of truth down deep in our hearts. God, I pray that, Father, in all that we do, all that we say, uh, would be glorifying to you, Lord. And, and that's our heart's cry today, Lord. And if there's any in here who do not know you, May today be the day of salvation, that they would look to you and live. I pray for anybody who's been struggling lately with uh, just assurance or trusting in you, Lord. May you remind them what your word says, that they would cling to it, Lord, that they would find peace and hope. God, we thank you for your love and your grace, that which we don't deserve. Give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.